Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Renewables. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Alan Philo, VP of Business Development in the organics business at Biostar Renewables. Uh, We're very appreciative to have one of our own on the show this week and to be talking about our food grade liquid organic fertilizer uh, that we make from our R&G projects. Now, there's been several other episodes um, and there's going to be more episodes on this topic on the podcast. So um, it's all going to start with the president of our organic fertilizer company, John Martin, will be the first episode um, available. So go back and check that one out. Uh, that talks about the company's timeline and history and how we got to where we are today producing our patented Super 6 fertilizer. Uh, but we have the absolute expert of experts with respect to fertilizer and organic farming uh, on with us today in Alan Philo, again, the VP of Business Development. Uh, for our organic fertilizer business at Biostar Renewables. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So, Likewise, likewise. And, um, you know, Biostar, we have a lot of different businesses. There's also going to be, there's an episode with uh, Peter Gohausen. He talks about the renewable natural gas market. And so just to set the stage a little bit, um, our renewable natural gas projects uh, we are able to take the affluent waste out of the back end of those anaerobic digesters that we're talk, we talk about in, in Peter Gohausen's episode, and we're able to turn that affluent waste into a patented organic food-grade fertilizer. Uh, and so that has a lot of applications. We're going to talk to Alan about those various applications today. But first, uh, if you would, Alan, just tell us about your background how you ended up with Biostar and developed such a passion for organic farming. Sure. So I, um, I got into organic farming about a decade ago, a little bit more than that. Started out working um, at a large organic farm just south of the Twin Cities in Minnesota called Gardens of Egan, uh, which was originally owned by Martin, Diff- Martin and Atina Diffley and uh, had come under the management of the Wedge Co-op and was being managed by uh, Linda Holly, um, who many people in the organic community um, know. She's, she's been a, a pillar of the organic community for years. I started out as a field operations manager there. We did about 100 acres of organic vegetables, which is a lot of organic vegetables, and worked uh, as part of a team there then I transitioned over and worked for Midwestern Bioag um, out in Wisconsin, and uh, which is where I still reside today. And <clears throat> worked for Gary Zimmer, developed their agriculture, uh, their, their vegetable program, uh, Fertility for Vegetables, and traveled all the way from Ontario to South Dakota to Missouri uh, doing vegetable um, consults for vegetable farmers. Um, which I, I still do uh, occasionally uh, for a couple of good friends of mine um, that I made during that time. And then did that for about five years, during which I also um, 
got a bachelor's degree in soil science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, shortly after that, uh, transitioned to my role here at Biostar Organics. Um, I had been become familiar with John and the product um, about four years uh, prior to that. And John and I had talked on and off and uh, it, was, it was time for me to make a transition from BioAg and uh, just really worked out well that that was also when Biostar really needed someone to come on and start handling the fertilizer side of things. So um, that's been, my, my interest has always been soils, um, how and how we can use soils, soil health um, and soil fertility to, to better grow uh, organic crops and, and just what all that takes to, good, to grow good organic crops. Awesome. Well, that that's a great intro and uh, certainly set the sets the stage uh, for the episode. I think and your background obviously lends itself very well uh, to our business and the organic food industry in general is really a booming industry. The last 10, 20 years have have really uh, we've seen a lot of growth. So set the stage a little bit for our, our viewers and listeners um, with kind of an overview of the organic space. And then let's get into Biostar's patented product, Super 6. Sure. So uh, first, for those, for people that don't know, the organic movement really started um, kind of post-World War II. Um, that was when we first saw the major introduction and, and like complete widespread adoption of what we kind of refer to as the industrial farming system of today with synthetically produced uh, mineral fertilizers, uh, pesticides, herbicides, a lot of those things were actually developed during World War II. Hmm. And um, so with, with that kind of wide-scale adoption, there also became people that were interested in preserving some of the older ways of doing things or maybe questioned some of the new products and methods that had come into use. This grew to the point where by about the 1970s, there were people actually starting to uh, grow organic food and sell it as such, that movement continued through the 80s to the point where by the end of the 80s, you had a widespread network of different organizations all um, certifying organic producers, right? It became evident that you couldn't just make a claim that you were an organic producer. You needed to have some sort of certification. But um, these were kind of patchwork. They had grown up uh, on their own all across the country. And that was when the organic movement asked the um, government to come in and create an actual uh, widespread nationwide organic food program. And that's mm -hmm. when um, that happened in the early 90s. And uh, that's where you first saw that organic seal go on um, food that says USDA organic. And that's really when we started to be able to track the growth of the organic industry, because before that it was, it was kind of all separate and, and, and disparate parts scattered around the nation. Basically since the beginning of that, the organic, uh, organic food sales, organic products of other than food sales have grown by double digits every single year um, since then, with maybe the exception of, of, a, of a couple of years just prior to this. Uh, where they were still growing at above 5%, I think around 8 or 9% a year. Um, and with that has also come the growth of uh, organic farming to be able to support those kinds of sales. And I, I think that we would always, 
all look back over the last decade and kind of recognize that over this last decade, organic has really become a mainstream thing. You can walk into almost any grocery store at this point and find organic pro produce, um, organic products to buy. And so that, that's really where, where this organic space has come from. Much of the initial growth has taken place in uh, like vegetable production. And now we're kind of seeing the organic industry grow up and we're seeing a lot more grains production. Um, we can talk about more of why that market looks the way it does um, later on, but that that's really why organics is is uh, such a booming industry right now. You know, it still accounts, even though it's been growing by double digit growth, it still accounts for less than I believe one percent of all farmed acres in the U.S. So by by an acreage standpoint, it's still fairly small, but um, it's it now has it, it's grabbing a bigger and bigger market share every year. Sure. Yeah, that's super interesting. And certainly, um, you know, interesting timing with the development of our product. Uh, whereas, you know, this this Biostar journey uh, started, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, when arguably, you know, the organic food industry wasn't as big, if you will, as it is now. Um, and so that's really interesting. And you actually mentioned it, it you know, it's become mainstream. It totally has. Uh, I think, you know, no matter sort of which, whether you're at the gourmet grocery store or at the price chopper, I think you almost always have organic options. And it actually sort of fits uh, a lot of themes that we talk about on our show with respect to the discerning consumer, right? And the, the consumer is discerning. The, the consumer will pay more um, if it makes them feel good or if it, the brand that they're buying uh, aligns with their values. And organic food, really, I think, was in a lot of ways earlier than that, we started to see consumers will pay more to know where their food came from or to know that it was grown in a certain way or in certain soil or in the absence of certain products. So um, really fascinating. Certainly my fridge is mostly organic, not just because we have an organic fertilizer product in the company, but uh, my wife you know, really prefers organic. And to your point about the, the grain growth in the industry, that's super interesting because I I mean, I wasn't probably looking that hard, but 10 years ago, I didn't see organic mac and cheese. I didn't see all of the sort of more like processed things that we eat that come in boxes that now you can get organically. So that's super interesting. Um, and, and I do think I want to come back to sort of that market and, and the, the reason that it is the way it is. Um, but first, tell us about Super 6 download our listeners and viewers on what is Super 6, um, why is this product so important, and why is it so important right now? So Super 6 is really unique. Um, just to start with, in, in its uh, nutrient analysis and in the way that it functions in the soil system, I, I'll talk about that a little bit, and then I'll talk about um, how, we, how we get there. Uh, a little bit about how we get from effluent water to to that and other ways that we can produce the product. So right. first, it's it's uh, one of the highest analysis nitrogen fertilizers, liquid nitrogen fertilizers available on the market for organics um, at, a, at 6%. So uh, that means that if I put on 100 pounds of product, right, I'm going to get six pounds of nitrogen. Um, and even though that sounds, you, you know, I, I said that's the highest available, you know, that, that's actually fairly small 
a fairly small percentage when you look at a lot of the synthetic alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. Which um, the highest, which is anhydrous ammonia is 82% nitrogen, mm -hmm. or the next one down is about 32% nitrogen. So 6% nitrogen, high for organics, again, not a huge nitrogen load going into the soil. But it's really the makeup of that nitrogen that is so uh, different from what a lot of the other sources are out there. The nitrogen in our product is ammoniacal in form, which is a completely natural form. Um, but most other products that liquid products that are being put on are some sort of like a fish hydrolysate. So that's basically like fish that's been liquefied. And so there's nitrogen in that product, but it's in the form of proteins. And so those proteins have to be broken down by microbiology in the soil for that nitrogen to be available to the plant. Or uh, they are in like a soy powder, and that's very similar. It has a nitrogen analysis, but it's locked up in the proteins of the soybean. Um, there's a lot of examples like that. Um, the other, now all of those, by the way, as they break down, they will release ammoniacal, ammoniacal nitrogen into the soil system. That is how the nitrogen will be presented to the plants and how it will enter soil solution. Uh, the other option out there that, that has a higher analysis is a product called Chilean nitrate, but that's a very different form of nitrogen. That is a nitrate form of nitrogen. Um, it's highly leachable from the soil environment if it isn't used immediately. The other thing that's very different between ammonia and nitrate is that ammoniacal nitrogen is the preferred form of nitrogen for soil microbiology. And soil microbiology and the function of soil microbiology is um, really one of the greatest things that drives soil health. And for those of you that have been following things in the agricultural world, you'll, you'll notice that over about the past five years, soil health has become a very, very important topic. Um, Soil health is very important in terms of soil erosion and soil degradation, um, soil resilience in the face of um, you know, heavier rains and uh, larger climactic events that we've seen over the past couple decades. So that's to say that the nitrogen that's in our product actually works together with microbiology in the soil and can be positive uh, for soil health. And again, it's a, it's a completely natural form. And that's really, again, where we, where we, because of what we start with. So we're always starting when we make this fertilizer with some sort of organic substrate. Um, that substrate could be manure going into an anaerobic digester. It could be manure being dried uh, for later application on the fields. It could be food waste um, from a municipality or a city as in our San Bernardino digester. Um, and, but but what, what unites all those things is that all coming out of some sort of organic substrate in which um, there is ammonium present in the water or in the um, steam, which is of course just vaporized water that is coming out of either a drying operation or some sort of anaerobic uh, digestion production. And what our process allows us to do is we will either cool that steam down or we will take that water. Uh, we filter out uh, any of the large particulate matter. And we do that for a number of reasons. Um, so some of them actual chemical reasons in the way that, uh, in the, way that the 
product behaves as, as we're concentrating it. And some of it for physical reasons for end use, because um, this product, we want it to be able to go through very small orifice, you know, micron sized emitters um, that are present in agricultural fields. And if we have large particulate matter in there, it can plug those. So that's interesting. So I'd imagine there's quite a few filters in the process. Yes, there's a number of different filters in the process. And then basically at the end of this process, what we're doing is taking water out of the product. And so what we're left with is really um, a concentrate of either of this, of this liquid. It could be the liquid portion of manure. It could be the liquid portion of the effluent water. But um, it's really no, you know, you can take that manure, you can take that effluent water and you could use that as fertility just as it is on an organic field. And all we're doing is removing that water from this product so that we can take this product out and transport it efficiently and mm -hmm. that the farmer can use it efficiently, right? So we're gonna start with something that's probably gonna have by percentage, you know, it might be as low as 0.25% um, nitrogen to start with. And we take that all the way up to 6%, you know, so that's, you know, obviously that's bigger than a, you know, 10 time <laughs> conversion, right? You know, you're looking at, you're looking at somewhere between depending on where we start, you know, 10 to 20 time concentration. And so that means that you have 20 times less water to be able to, to have to transport around. Sure. What that also means though is as part of the process, it has um, amazing environmental benefits. Um, because what we're effectively doing is um, you could actually look at us as a water reclamation service that makes a fertilizer byproduct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, if, if you'll just give me a second here, I want to I want to bring up a note I have here because this is this is really important. Um, sure. It's that when we start with like a hundred thousand gallons of a base product. Let's say we start with 100,000 gallons of a manure that's going to go into a digester, right? Okay. From that, we make approximately 650,000 cubic feet of methane, right? So that's, we're, we're creating green energy by processing that manure. Um, we're making 78,000 gallons of clean water. Wow. Right, so 78% of that manure is coming back as clean water. And I, and I think people become more aware that water is becoming a limiting factor in agricultural systems, even in city systems. If you think about doing a process like this, you know, in a, in a semi-arid area like Southern California or like Arizona, you know, we can go in and clean up a manure stream, turn it into a fertilizer product and give back 78% of that manure back as clean water that can either be put on crops or fed back to cattle, you know, in a dairy yeah. barn. That's, that's an amazing contribution. Um, and then with that, we're only producing 1800 gallons of super six product. Hmm. Right. So again, you, you, you can, look at this, you can decide which way you want to look at this. You know, are we a fertilizer company or are we a water reclamation company with a fertilizer? Sure. But that's, that's just to kind of highlight the intense environmental benefits that you also get with this product.
Yeah, th those are amazing statistics. And it, you're sort of echoing a similar sentiment that um, Peter Gohausen mentioned on his episode. And, and there will be some overlap here. So I really hope our, our listeners will go back and listen to John's episode and Peter's episode. And um, because there is some overlap, but it's all really interesting. I think Peter's comment was something like, you know, really the renewable natural gas business is the waste to energy business. Um, but the byproduct, you know, is this renewable gas, which we, we need to make a lot more of. Um, so that's really interesting. So not only are you removing the water, um, and maybe this is a dumb question, not only are you removing the water, but you're actually treating and cleaning the water as well, or is that removing the water, is that sort of the process? You just end up with clean water. What, what does it take to get the water clean enough to be able to feed it to the cows or use it in your building or uh, discharge it? Basically what you're what you're looking at there is you want to you want to remove anything that is going to create one biological oxygen demand in the water, meaning that there's some sort of still decomposable element in the water that biology can use to break it down because that sucks the oxygen out of the water and basically contaminates the water. So you, you get rid of a lot of that by moving these particulates. Um, so you know a lot of that goes away with our first, uh, first processes of filtering it. But then what happens is um, we want to preserve all of, you know, in our product, you don't just get the nitrogen, you get all of the secondary and micronutrient components of your original substrate still in that manure. I am still in that end product. And that's that's basically what we're doing is when we're removing the water, those are all the things that would be considered contaminants in the water. So by just our process of wanting to preserve those and taking the water out of it, the water is pretty much clean and drinkable as soon as we've removed that water from, from the product itself, right? It's actually drinkable water. It's drinkable water. We can, wow. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's potable. Uh, you can feed it back to cattle. You can um, use it in any other systems that you would need to use, uh, you know, in an animal operation. And, uh, and in the event that you are lucky enough to live in a place where you have excess water, uh, we have been able to get, you know, discharge permits um, because it's so clean to be able to put this back into local water bodies. And it's not a, a pollutant at that point. So that's wow. how we get it. That's amazing. So, so let's get back to the market a little bit. And certainly if anybody watching this has questions, um, I don't mean to speak for you, Alan, but I know that Alan would, would love to hear from you and answer some more questions. And we're actually going to have a follow-up episode to this uh, for the, the real ag geeks like Alan and I out there uh, to get a little more in the weeds on, on some of this. So stay tuned for our future episodes because uh, we're bringing Alan and some other experts back on the show. And we're really excited about that here in the next few weeks. Um, but let's get back to the marketplace. Obviously, you know, we feel there's a large enough addressable market uh, to be building more of these fertilizer projects going into 2021 and 2022. Um, talk about how that, you know, market growth in the last 20, 30 years has created more of a demand for products like this. Are there other products like this out there that people can buy now? Um, and then let's talk about, you know, as it continues to grow, 
where is this market going? How big can it get? Right. So first, I'm going to, I'm going to start with your second question first, which is, are there sure. other products that you can purchase? And the answer is no. Uh, we are really unique in the organic space. You know, this is a patented process. Um, and, and we are actively out there developing the market and, and the logistical capability to deliver this, you know, anywhere we, anywhere we want in the country. Um, so we, we're a very unique product in that sense. Now, the way that the organic market looks now and where it's going is really interesting. So right now, when you look at organic production in the U.S., what you'll see is if you start getting into um, the data, and most of the data, if I quote any numbers, um, it's coming out of uh, something that is done every few years by the USDA, which is the USDA Organic Survey. Um, I don't have the latest numbers. I'm actually in the process of updating our market analysis um, at this point because they just released the 2019 survey data in October of 2020, and I haven't been able to go through that. So my numbers go back to about 2016 when I'm going to quote any numbers here. But the bulk of organic production in this country is really centered on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And it is really heavily in um, vegetables. And this makes total sense if you think about um, how growers, uh, what it takes to become organic, right? Mm -hmm. So when I am um, a grower and I'm going to take a product and get it to somebody organically, I have to certify that my the, the field production systems are organic, but then I also have to show that any time it's touched between the field and the consumer, that it's not being contaminated with some sort of uh, conventional product or a GMO or um, a non-approved uh, substance um, to be used in handling procedures for organics. So vegetables are very easy in this sense because if I think about if I think about what I see in the field what I see in the field is pretty much what I'm purchasing in the store I have a head of lettuce in the field the head of lettuce is cut in the field it's put into a box um, the box is put on a truck the truck comes to the store it's unloaded and put on a shelf the box doesn't need to be organic right you know it's, it's a hand it's a box <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of like extra infrastructure that goes into getting vegetables from the field to the consumer. And so it's been a natural place of growth. The easiest place of growth for organics has been uh, in the vegetable section, section uh, sector. So what you see is that like 15% of all spinach in this country is organically produced and that matches with sales. Is about 15% of all of the uh, spinach that is eaten in this country is organic spinach. Um, so you compare that to something like grains, where less than 1% of all of the grain production in this country is organic. And that makes sense too, because there's a lot of steps between sure. what you see and then what ends up on your shelf. So, you know, you'd said earlier, now I see organic mac and cheese or I see organic pasta. But if you think through this just a little bit, what you see is that I have the grain in the field, and then you know the, there are a lot of these operations, these organic operations. They have both a conventional side and an organic side. Right. You know, somebody's doing a thousand acres, and they they make two hundred of it organic because um, they're trying to diversify and, and capture more market. And sure. 
But what that means is that you have to have separate grain storage, right? So even on the farmer level, now I have to have a large infrastructure improvement to be able to let me farm part of my farm organically and still have this conventional operation. And you see right. that all the way through the system. So then I have to make sure the trucks have been cleaned out because the trucks have a lot of fines in them. It's not like you're putting it in a box. You're in, you, you move these things in bulk. So the trucks sure. have to have cleaning procedures to take it from this place to this place. If we're gonna process it, you either have to clean all your processing equipment, shut down the entire processing line and do an organic only run for a period of time, right? So there's a lot more that goes into the infrastructure to be able to process grains. So sure. that kind of gets, so that explains a lot of why the market looks the way it does. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had actually never heard you give exactly that um, explanation and it makes total sense. So basically, you know, the more process a product needs to get to the shelf, uh, the more difficult it is to implement those processes. And you're talking a lot about a lot of capital and things like that. Perhaps that's why uh, we've seen, you know, like Annie's is a brand that comes to mind who I think is totally organic. Um, but I also have spoken with, you know, in our, our solar business and our electricity side of our business, uh, we target a lot of food production companies. And so talking with, um, you know, some of those food production companies actually have their own farms and talking about, you know, what it takes to convert the soil over, which I think is, is it four years that a, a field has to, four to six years that a field has to sit um, without a crop growing? Yeah, so during that time, you can't apply anything that would be considered non-organic or would be outside of organic standards. You can still be growing crops that entire time. Those are actually referred to as transitional crops, as yep. in they're crops that are basically being grown organically, but they're not certified organic yet because the, the, field, um, the field isn't considered organic. And the reason for that is, is that you know, let, let's say you've been applying pesticides or herbicides on this field. The idea here is that it's going to take three years for those, um, the residues from those products to basically be cleaned up and drop out of the soil system so that they're not going to contaminate the organic product that, you know, at the start of the third year. Sure. Really interesting. Yeah, so as the as time goes on and more, um, you know, let's take grains as an example, uh, more organic grain products become available. Are we seeing that as supply increases, demand is meeting the supply? I mean, have there been any sort of lapses with any particular crops or are we seeing that there is, you know, really a steadily increasing demand for organic products? Yeah, the demand is there. Um, the demand is there. What I, what I would say is this, like if somebody goes and, and has the capability of putting like a whole bunch of organic pasta on grocery store shelves, it's going to get bought. The question becomes, it sort of becomes this chicken and egg thing about how, what do you need first? Do you need enough growers to be able to um, have companies invest in the infrastructure to start like an a, a organic only section or do you need the people to invest in you know 
the organic only processing infrastructure to get more farmers to change over. Sure. And so what you've seen is there's kind of like, there's been this slow growth, now actually very rapid, actually sometimes triple digit growth um, in, in acres being transitioned, in grain acres being transitioned over to organics. And there's been an explosion in the amount of organic grain buyers. Um, that's also one of the things that's very different um, about like the grains market without getting too much into that. Again, because you don't have the farm basically like selling to somebody who's going to market the product. There's usually about three or four people that are buying the grains along the way for different processing steps. And you also have grain buyers that are collating huge lots of grain in order to allow for the large processing of the grain, right? So mm -hmm. makes sense. it's been an explosion in organic grain buyers, which I think is a big indication that that, that grain industry is growing. But there have been huge shortfalls in production. It actually has led to a very strange situation um, of illegal organic imports, um, which is something that the organic community is presently trying to rectify. There's been some new legislation passed um, to support better tracking of organic imports, but there have been large amounts of questionable imports of organic grains into the country from different places around the world because the demand is so high. Um, what's happened though is because it's, it's created this odd situation in which because there's been so much importing of these questionable uh, products, it actually caused the organic uh, grain prices to decline. So um, until we get this issue rectified, we might actually see even like a slight decrease um, in organic grain acres for a short period of time while, while we wait for these um, these most likely illegal imports to be shut out of the country and um, and make sure that that actually certified organic products are being grown. But um, there's going to be and, and then what you're going to see is this very big gap between supply and demand and you see a lot of people moving into that space. The other thing is that it takes a it takes a decent amount of knowledge to be able to grow an organic crop. And there's a learning curve to getting back into that. Interestingly enough, it can sometimes be easier to do that on the vegetable side as well as opposed to on the grain side. And you've seen a lot of educational organizations. Um, there's an O-Grain conference that was started in Madison just a few years ago, really focusing on organic grain production. And there's a lot more support of that, educating and providing the tools uh, for people to be able to grow organic grains. And that's where we really think this market is going in the future. The nice thing is, is that our product is suitable for any organic crop that's being grown. It's excellent for vegetable production. Um, a lot of vegetable production, uh, like in California on the West Coast, it's done with uh, drip irrigation, which is a very water efficient form of irrigation. And it's very nice to be able to be able to include some fertility in that water. And we're excellent for that. Like I said, we, have, we don't have any particulates in it. We won't block any orifices. Um, we're also That's great. So you can use our product right in an existing drip irrigation system, pump it right through. That's right. Um, or fertigation system. So if you're doing overhead irrigation, you can include it there. Uh, we've had excellent results on berry crops like blueberries, um, which prefer ammonium as their uh, nutrient source. And then what, what we really feel is that um, at 
even though organics is 30 years old at this point, if you take it from the start of the national organic program, mm -hmm. um, it's really sort of in its, in its infancy uh, in a lot of ways. And what, what we really feel is that we can become a, like a base level, ground level product that people are familiar with and um, can become a, a intrinsic ground level product for the production of grains. And that's where you're really going to see the acreage growth in this country. And that's where we can really affect, you know, soil health and, and food quality in this country is as, as more of these organic grains are grown and get into the hands of consumers. And that's really what's going to power this side of the business in the years to come too. It's fascinating. One quick question. How, where do you think the U.S. sort of stands or sits uh, with respect to other countries uh, and organic food production? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I don't have any real statistics uh, to support this, but the other, the other entity that really has like an organic food movement in this way is pretty much like the EU. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is, is you have to think about this as you're not going to have an organic food movement unless you've adopted basically this industrial form of agriculture. And remember, there's whole parts of the world that really haven't done that. Uh, or really never did that. And so basically what that meant is they've always grown their food organically. Yeah, um, interesting. So, yeah, so that's that's a major place. But um, a lot of our grains, you know, there, there's a lot of corn. There's a lot of soybeans. Um, there's a lot of grapes and fruit products that are produced in Central and South America. And those, um, what's interesting is because a lot of those products are coming into the U.S. market, they will grow to USDA standards and then they will have that certified under USDA um, uh, standards as well. Um, mm -hmm. There are actually some differences in, in the US standards and the EU standards that sometimes make it hard to take American grown products and transport them over to Europe. But um, you know, we, don't, we don't see a lot of that anyway. And there's plenty sure. of demand in the country to suck up any organic production we have in this country. Well, this is all fascinating stuff. And to our viewers and listeners who have tuned in, if this is interesting, again, I encourage you to go back and look for John Martin and Peter Gohausen's episodes and stay tuned. Make sure to subscribe to Renewables uh, uh, on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We are going to have Alan back here in a couple of weeks uh, to dig in a little bit deeper into some of the benefits of our product soil health. I think we're going to get into those field trials you've been working on over the last several years a little bit uh, that have produced really promising and exciting results. So um, as we wrap up here, Alan, any final thoughts? Uh, how can folks get in touch with you? Um, make sure you, you include that and, um, and any final thoughts for us. Sure. So um, the best way to reach me is over email, uh, which is um, a philo at biostarrenewables.com. I'm sure we can include that in some notes on the website. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Excellent. Um, and then <clears throat> one of my closing thoughts is, uh, is really that this product and other technologies like it are allowing us to uh, close nutrient loops 
Um, this kind of gets back to some of the environmental benefits. One of the things that's happened in the country over the past, you know, basically the past 80 years is uh, we have animals in, in higher, higher concentrations um, throughout the country. And what's this done is it's made it harder to get the nutrients that pile up in manure um, back into other parts of the agricultural sphere. And what happens too is that that manure turns into a pollutant. Um, instead of a benefit, it turns into a pollutant in too high of, uh, concentrations. And so one of the things that, that we're able to do with this is we're able to take these nutrients, capture them in a form, market them in a form that is economical, and, and get them back out in the countryside um, where, where they belong. And also that process alone, uh, ammonium is one of the um, ammonium and nitrogen fixation through the Haber-Bosch process is an incredibly uh, carbon intensive process. It emits huge amounts of CO2, burns natural gas to, to fix this nitrogen. So what we're also doing is basically preserving nitrogen in the system that doesn't need to be fixed by the Haber-Bosch process again, and therefore lowering CO2 emissions. So that's again, just, just to state that this, this product, while it has amazing agronomic potential, is also part of a bigger solution to environmental issues. Sure. Yeah. And not to mention, you mentioned, you know, the manure um, in intensity uh, at some of these large confined animal feeding operations. And uh, I know that that's been a huge issue for farmers for a long time is what do we do with all this manure? How do we manage that? Um, and so another added benefit of the product, obviously, being able to, you know, effectively give a farmer a manure management system uh, to be able to, to dispose of that in a way that's good for the environment. All really fascinating stuff. Uh, Alan, really appreciate you coming on and sort of laying the groundwork here for Super 6 Fertilizer. Really excited to bring you back and get a little bit further down in the weeds. So once again, for our listeners, please uh, make sure and subscribe and follow the, con the podcast so you never miss an episode. To Alan Philo, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. It's been hugely educational. Uh, I even learned a couple of new things about our product that I, that I didn't know before. So thanks again, and we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you, David. Thanks. Take care.